Hello and welcome to A Wee Bit of War, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Northern Ireland during the Second World War. I'm your host, Scott Edgar, and in this episode, we're talking about defence heritage in Northern Ireland with Dr James O'Neill. Jim is an archaeologist, a historian, an author, with a passion for unearthing defence heritage sites across Ulster, documenting those used throughout the First World War, Second World War and Cold War. Jim, I've been a long-time fan of your work on defence heritage. It's brought to my attention first through your excellent Twitter account. Uh, uh, so it's great to uh, welcome you on to the podcast, and we're delighted to have you on. Great to be on, Scott. Um, before we get into talking about all things concrete and red brick, uh, let's get to know you a little. Who is Dr James O'Neill, and how did you come to be interested in this aspect of our history? Believe it or not, it's almost by accident. Um, well, it was totally by accident. I used to work years and years ago. I worked in the Northern Ireland Environment Agency as a contractor. Uh, we worked in the planning section. So we would have been the people that if you're building a, a house or a power station, the planning service would contact us and make sure that there was no archaeological issues or uh, if there was, if you could mitigate it. And so back in 90, 1997, they started the Defence Heritage Project which uh, brought in volunteers to uh, catalogue um, World War One and World War Two and Cold War sites across Northern Ireland. Now, this was all part of the um, defense, uh, sort of like a sideline of the Defence of Britain project. But obviously, for certain reasons, they were going to call it called, called Defence of Britain over here. So the Defence Heritage Project it was. Uh, and that brought it was a perfect way to start because what the, the, the archaeologists that were uh, run it had no baseline to work from. No, there was no records available here that mm. uh, they were aware of. Certainly all the best records are still over in Q, the National Archive. So what they did is they tapped into this massive resource of one, goodwill and two, local knowledge. And over the course of about two years, they put together a list of about 330 sites across Northern Ireland. And that's everything from airfields and pillboxes and radar sites. And I had nothing to do with this. At this time, I was still busily working away in my planning section, and this was happening in another part of the building. And I was in the mid-twenties anyway. I was far too busy doing what mid-twenties people are doing, rather than giving away your free time to what seemed like work to me. But after that project finished, it lasted about two years. We came to realize that all the information that they'd pulled together didn't have any planning protection. So whereas if there was a wrath or a stance or something like that, um, falls under plan and policy. Um, none of the defence heritage did. It was literally wide open to redevelopment. If you want to knock it down, you knock it down. If you want to redevelop it, you redevelop it, any of it. So what I did was I took their information and I put it on the historic environment record, uh, the site monument record, as it was called at the time. And so we had all these dots, started populating maps, and then they started to get a level of uh, protection. The department classified them as uh, monuments, so therefore covered under planning policy. So that was grand. That's, that's how it initially started. Then back in 2008, I jumped ship. I actually uh, left the department and started full-time education. I started the master's and PhD program in history in Queens. So sort of got detached from it and floated away off into the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was still warfare, but it's uh, quite different altogether. So that's that, that's where I lived quite happily for a long amount of time, working on the Nine Years' War. And then only when all that was finished and uh, got publications out and the rest, I got 
the department, which is now called the Historic Environment Division, started to look at it again to see um, if what they had was uh, sufficient, or if it was like you know, of an international standard. And so they had me do a review of it in 2018. And um, what we found was that though the uh, volunteers actually brought together information that they had no previous access to, there were certain inbuilt things that uh, deficiencies that, that, that um, um, meant that the, what they had was like, there were huge gaps in the information they had. Mm-hmm. Um, they found it with volunteers, they tended to look at what they were interested in. So if you were in the airplanes, you look at airplanes, you're in the pillboxes, you look at the pillboxes. And if you weren't in the, if no one was in the, say, Royal Observer Corps modern bunkers, they just didn't get done. Yeah. Um, so there's huge gaps. Uh, and it was essentially it wasn't systematic at all. There was no there was no um, there was no common terminology. Uh, there sometimes there was misidentification. Things were said to be sites that weren't sites, or there was some sort of different site. Um, and so, based on that review, um, the HED came back to me, or they they put out for tender, and I got the contract to do a resurvey, which is essentially go back, revisit every single site they had, and then go on to social media, the internet, everything, and busy trying to pull together from sites like yourself, uh, other sites, uh, 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 wartime NI, then there's World War II NI, then there's frontline Ulster, places like that, um, and try and draw in every other bit of information that was out there and go out to these sites, field work them, get their, uh, see what condition they're now, report on their condition, uh, identify any threats, that sort of thing. Um, and that was a two-year project. Now, we're coming to the back end of that now. And initially, they had identified, as part of the Defence Heritage Project, they'd identified about 330 sites, with which totaled about 700 features. Since there's obviously more than one feature, some sites are multi-featured. But after two years of work, that's turned into, I think it's about 540 sites with 4,000, and I'm looking at the, the uh, mapping system I have now, and it's 4,351 features now recorded. That, that's incredible. So got, there's an awful lot more we now. Yeah. Um, so you, you said there at, at the beginning, the, the project covers uh, multiple periods of conflict right up until uh, the Cold War. Uh, but of course, our focus here is on 1939 to 45. Um, what are some of the remnants of, of Second World War heritage that, that still remain out there on our landscape? Oh, it's it's the land, sure. Like, yes, there's World War One, there's Cold War. There's even some troubles that you can find, but it's, it's actually really hard to find, as he says. Um, but by far, you're talking about the mass basketball that's World War Two. Um, and we're talking everything from the airfields to the radar sites, to the pillboxes down, the invasion defences, the coastal gun batteries. If you name it, if it comes to mind about something in World War Two, generally we've got it in some sort of version or another all across Northern Ireland. Um, it's probably one of the bigger surprises they always talk about is the uh, the airfields. Now people know there was airfields, but it's almost like they're so big that they're hidden in plain view um, that people drive past them and over them every day um, and, and don't pay any any attention that there's anything left. One of, one, one of my uh, favourites that pops up is say, uh, Nuts Corner. Now everyone knows about the, the market that's up there every Sunday, but it sits bang in the middle of an open. In fact, the road, one of the roads runs along one of the uh, 
old runways. It's only when you look the other side, you can see the World War II concrete. So we had literally so big that people just don't pay any attention to it. Other ones with the airfields, the buildings have been modified uh, by reuse. And so people don't even think they're associated with it. Uh, one of the ones that come to mind are the hangers up at Tomb Airfield. Mm-hmm. Now they've been converted and reclad. Um, know that there's, there's new modern cladding put on, new doors and all the rest of that. And so people just thought, oh, they're just like big warehouses. But when you go inside, you can see the framing that, that gives it away as, as an old World War II hangar. And the truth is, that's the key to these things surviving. It's a, the, the, um, reuse is great because it assures, one of the things actually about this whole project is uh, how do you ensure this stuff survives into the future? And uh, so when you come across something like that's been reused like that, that's great. And sometimes it comes as a total surprise. Um, I think there was a couple of, uh, oh, wow, during the blessing when they um, had damaged the short Harland, and so they started to redistribute um, uh, final assemblies of uh, aircraft in the different sites around Belfast. And so some of them was like Lisburn. And I had no idea that I'm used to hangars appearing on the airfield because that's sort of where you expect them to go. So you end up with like McGowery. And you've got the hangers at McGabry, you've got the hangers at Long Cash, which are used for final assemblies. But there's actually two hangers, there's like one actually, there was two, but there's two hangers out in Lisburn, out, uh, on one of the industrial estates. And it, again, it just looks, I think it's a coffee distributor now, um, as part of the industrial estate. And it's only when you went in, again, that the frames gave it away. But then all of a sudden you start looking at it with different eyes, you go, that's actually a fire watcher's hut on the side. And all the way different, you no. Know, it's, you might have been ignoring because you just didn't think it was the World War II site. It's there. But yeah, they're the, the, the big ones. Um, uh, I think when, when I first started this project, I decided, right, what am I going to do? I'll, I really need to, I know what I want, how I want to do this, know your methodology for survey. But to refine it, you know, the, the, the challenge, you know, I'll, try, I'll go for one of the tough ones first because it's always when you take one of the tough ones with lots of sites that... Um, you really find out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. So I actually started at Bishop's Court. And it was one of the good examples because in the Defence Heritage Project, it had members in um, for planning. You have points that trigger yeah. uh, planning responses. Um, Bishop's Court's a huge, hundreds of acres, 600, 700 acre site. And uh, it had one point, a single point in the landscape. What we, Initially, we had like one point that identified Bishop's Court after two weeks of survey, because that's all, all you pretty much, you got like two weeks per hour and that was it, then you had to move on. Um, we identified over 250 features across the airfield, um, and we found that ultimately the, the airfield comes in four, sorry, three major sections. You got the uh, runways and the perimeter tracks. Then you got the technical area, which is where all the work is done, um, so training and maintenance. And then you have the dispersed living sites because crews and uh, airfield uh, personnel don't live on the site. They live away from the site because it's a, 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 a thing called dispersed living sites. Uh, it turned out that the ones at Bishop's Court have been entirely rebuilt post-war. But you still have these huge, they actually look like, um, in fact, they have been all reused either as houses or holiday homes. No, um, So there's, Dozens of them, all still there, all in really good condition. Um, 
But what was also really good about Bishop's Court was that it was a multi-phase. So even though it's World War II and you have the control towers and the technical site and the maintenance area, they're all really good good condition. Well, when I say good condition, good condition for something that's over 80 years old. Um, but it's also multi-phase and multi-use. So you have the airfield. You also have the ground control intercept radar station, which is built on the northern end of the airfield during World War II. Um, and then it falls into use into the Cold War. So it's layered on it. And so you have Cold War sites on it as well. So you have this really complex, really interesting site, even the way of like um, uh, nuclear protected sites, you know, like big, heavily fortified 1980s uh, radar bunkers. Yeah. So really, really interesting site. And that, this is the very first one. Um, and so we went on to the others. I think there was 19 built during the war, I think it is. Um, and literally, because we knew there were so many sites associated with these, they gave me half the entire project. One whole year was dedicated just to the airfields, and we needed every part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd say, yeah, at least half of the features um, recorded would be airfield-related sites. Um, which is great if you love airfields, but we had to cover everything. Um, so we ended up with the, the radar stations, uh, which come in several varieties. You've got the chain home stations, you've got the chain home low stations, you've got the ground control intercept stations, all varieties of that. You have ground defences, which probably people are more familiar with. Yep. Now you've got the, the pillboxes on the coastal pillboxes on the beaches that people, if you can go to the north coast or down around Murloc, you would see. Um, the stop lines, um, which we get there, they're in better condition, probably along the band stop line. Um, and the campsites, um, a huge amount of, uh, as you know, with the, the wartime, there's a huge influx of troops, be it British troops, uh, Allied troops, US troops, all came into Northern Ireland. And they, even when people always think about you no know, uh, operational sites, no fighting the war, mm-hmm. a lot of the things related to them are all busy. People have got to live somewhere, people got to eat somewhere, so they're all domestic. and. There's hundreds upon hundreds of these hutted, I don't know, the hut bases. So when I say that um, these dots are, uh, each each dot that, that I plotted and recorded, it can cover everything from a nuclear bunker or a control tower all the way down to literally a uh, 16 foot by 36 foot concrete hut base and everything in between. And, and that's, the, that's why that's why this project was so interesting because it was just so many different things to look at, and you got to got to go to so many different places. Uh, we are big fans of getting out around those different places, and I I do love uh, finding a bit of concrete road or uh, just just a bit of nineteen uh, forties concrete or red brick. If I'm saying if there are people listening that are interested in that, of course they are. They're they're listening to this podcast. Uh, but where could people find out uh, where and what these sites are? Um, what what you can do, the, the, the whole reason, well, not the whole reason for this, but one of the key reasons is to get this information. There's no point in doing this if you're not telling anyone or not making it available. Um, but one of the things in Northern Ireland is that Northern Ireland's got quite draconian access laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, in England and Scotland, they have all this right to room, so people, a lot of people can rock across the landscape and see loads of different things. You don't have that here. Um, it's very, people have very limited scope for 
wandering about. Luckily, I could because I was working for the department. And under the department, you have uh, laws that actually allow access on the land that you otherwise wouldn't be able to see. Which is fine for me because then I, I can write all these things on Twitter and all the rest and, and regale you with stories and pictures of these fabulous places. Uh, but most people can't. And so what they've done is they've actually put this on the Historic Environment Division web mapper, which maps all the archaeology and all the plan landscapes and all the everything that uh, kinds of uh, built heritage in Northern Ireland is on this web mapper on, on different layers. Now there's a new layer on there that covers this work. And so how it comes up is you've got these points that cover everything I've put in. And it'll have the Defence Heritage record number. And it'll give a brief description of what it is, what it was used for, if we can identify it. Because believe me, there's a lot of sites out there that we can't place an exact use on it, but we know that they're Defence Heritage related. And what they'll be able to do is they'll be able to click on these points. And what's different from this as what came before is all the photographs that I take mm-hmm. are clickable on this. So when you click on a site that say a pillbox on a domain somewhere or somewhere that uh, people can't go, they'll be able to click on this anyway and they'll see all the photographs I took of that. So all the information out there, what what you can see is out there, even if they can't get on the land, all the pictures are available where possible. Sometimes, of course, there's cases where um, uh, the landowner or the person that allowed access prefers it not to go and then of course we have to uh, 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 it still goes as part of the archive but we can't make it public terrible and there's other um, sites as you'd expect when they allowed me up to have a look at Aldergrove and Aldergrove Aldergrove is a talk in itself um, uh, everyone's aware of Aldergrove was known the Belfast International Airport but um, it's also uh, combined Army RAF uh uh, the helicopter base, or the but the whole that's huge, huge southern area that people actually they see it whenever they go on holiday, but generally no one really gets in there unless you got the, the reason to be there. And they did allow me in to have a look because obviously it's uh, older was actually one of the pre it was in it built interwar, it's actually uh, one of the earliest airfields uh, built here. Um, and it's it's amazing. It's it's just something else. It's if anyone's ever sat and watched uh, the Battle of Britain mm-hmm. and you've seen those airfields and what they look like, that's what it looks like. It's like oh, I'd almost describe it as a, an open museum if you're into your interwar RAF architecture. And there's like the Type C hangars and the Type F sheds, and these has four of these hangars called Lamela hangars, which is built like a very German Bauhaus type. That's like a geodetic lattice design to create this uh, self-supporting arch. Yeah, four of those. There's not one. There's not one in England that isn't this. And they have four just sitting there. Um, but there's no photographs because it was an operational uh, military site. They brought me up so that I could um, visually go right. That's what that is, and this is what condition it is. So that's what I could write. But no photographs, unfortunately, for for understandable operational and security reasons. Sounds absolutely. Um fantastic fantastic opportunity to even get in there and and see some of that um stuff um once people maybe have we'll we'll put the link to the defense heritage map up on the the show notes for this episode um so Mm -hmm. people can click through to that and and have a look at all the uh, hard work you've been doing um once people find something on on the map they might 
you know, want to go out there and explore and see, you know, what kind of buildings are, are around the area. Outside of researching online and looking at digital kind of things, what physically is out there that people should be, you know, we talk a lot about types of concrete and, you know, little kind of red brick constructions or, or slabs of, of hot bases and things like that. But what should our listeners be looking like? What kind of physical things are, are out there that they should keep an eye out for? You mentioned yourself with a lot of red brick. They love where they were building it. They built a lot of red brick. Uh, after a while, you can actually spot stuff that you just know. Um, certainly, when even though there's a lot of red brick getting built, there was a shortage of it. So a lot of the time, they built just these single skin buildings with like a supporting pier, so on the outside, uh, basically to hold the wall up, stop falling in itself. Uh, and it's a very World War Two type design. Or that, especially in the airfields, that you get the spot very quickly. And uh, a lot of the time on the airfields, um, if and when you can get access to, now there's a lot of these sites, like I was saying, can't get access to, or you have to ask the landowner that, um, if you can get on, um, because an awful lot of it is on private land. Um, things like the pillboxes, you'll spot them, you'll know them when you see them. Um, they're like the ones up on the north coast. Um, uh, they can be a bit hard to spot sometimes because. Uh, certainly the ones up in Port Stewart Strand. The sand has a tendency to cover them over. Um, what was the sand being with sand is that sand dunes move. Um, certainly there's one up at the band mouth. The, I've seen it where it's pretty much, it's totally intact and sometimes you can actually get into it and sometimes you can barely see it depending on what the sand's letting you do. Um, you can spot them, up, say if you go up to McGilligan as well, you up to know where the Martello Tower is there. Yeah. Um, you can see just by the side of the road there's a very obvious concrete pillbox because it looks like a concrete pillbox it's concrete and it's square and it's ugly that actually tells you that's the rule you should have tick boxes if it's concrete and it's uh brutalist architecture and it's ugly you're pretty much on track there that's that's your tick boxes um a lot of time when i'm bringing this to part of the project was i had to recommend sites for protection be it scheduling or listening to the Historic Environment Division. Now, they don't have to listen to me. I'm, I'm, I'm just making recommendations based on rarity and quality uh, and my experience. Um, and certainly sometimes they're used to protecting prettier things. Um, certainly when it's listing, you have pretty buildings with nice architecture. You're not getting pretty buildings. I'm not recommending pretty buildings. They're all quite functional and brutalist. Uh, and you need to like your functional and list. Um, otherwise, you'll be disappointed because there's very little pretty. Apart from Alder Group, Alder Group has some really nice interwar. In fact, it has some designs called RAF architecture. Design, and it has a style of itself. And Alder Group has a lot of that. Um, but yeah, lots of ugly, uh, lots of brick. Um, you need to be careful because there is there can be. Uh, jagged bits of metal and these things have been out on their own unattended and uncared for for quite some time so yeah you do need to be careful um, but yeah sometimes they just end up jutting out of this like especially in the sand dunes I was just saying at McGilligan Point where they have people be, might be wide by looking at the Martello Tower they go oh, look there's a Martello Tower that's fantastic the Polyonic War what they don't realise of is that uh, the Martello Tower, for the same reason the Martello Tower was built there, they had uh, to close off uh, most of the foil. They built a coastal gun battery there in World War II, an emergency battery, because Derry was obviously 
are really important. One of the most important naval escort bases during World War II. Yeah. Which again, people may forget. So they built a gun battery. I don't, people may be familiar with the coastal battery up at Grey Point. You know, it has the two Mark Seven six-inch guns. Um, well, there's actually uh, was it one, two, three? How many batteries was there? There was Orlock and there was Grey Point and there was Kilroot were built. Then there's the one at Chin uh, Memorial at Larne. And then the last one was the one up in uh, McGilligan. And if you walk along the dunes there, um, you can actually see bits of it, bits of the concrete just jumping out of the dunes. And I've actually had a probe there and it leaks, appears in this photographs of the concrete battery uh, on either side of the um, Martello Tower there from the 1970s, which was almost intact. And so it's quite possible that up around there, that the entire concrete, entirety of the concrete, the was the the gun platforms and the um, uh, battery command seems to be just covered over entirely by the sand. Um, but yeah, you, if you see these things in the field, you will know them after a while because they have a look about them that that tends to just switch. so they they're uh, functional and ugly and a lot of concrete, a lot of steel, a lot of brick. You will know them when you see them. Uh, sometimes it can be quite puzzling. Um, at, I'm sure you're familiar with you know, the uh, bomb aimer. A yep. bomb aimer up at Port Stewart. And it's just like a big concrete arrow. And literally, it's just a big concrete arrow that's pointing the direction of the, um, the bombing range for pilots. But if they look out, they see a great big white arrow on the bombing range is over there. Um, so, yeah, uh, you, you, you will know them, um, even if sometimes they're not all pillboxes. Uh, pillboxes, as much as I love them, would make up the minority of the buildings. Um, there's lots of domestic stuff. Um, where people can get to see them. But if it's pillboxes you're looking for and you're chasing, the North Coast, Murloc, and the stop line down at no, uh, Scarborough, mm-hmm. uh, that's where you'll find your pillboxes. And uh, some of them, uh, certainly the ones that, uh, on stop line in Scarborough, some of them are actually just right out in the road there, so they're actually quite easy to see. Oh, I was I was born and bred and ported down, uh, so I can I can recommend that the whole run from uh, along the band from ported down through Guildford and on at the Scarva, um, just along that. Well, oh, you'll know the you'll know them. Then. They're, 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 they're what the, what those ones can boast is actually they're the uh, the t- biggest toughest pillboxes we have here, because though there's um, there's loads of pillboxes on say not loads but you've got the coastal ones, but they're all about. They're all bulletproof, so they're all about you no know, fifty centimeters thick. Mm-hmm. All the ones in Scarborough and along that bar line there, their maximum is like 138 centimeters thick. Those are shell-proof pillboxes. They're meant to take a beating because of this work, as well as increased interest from say local councils. That generally, I think they just didn't know the stuff was there. And so, one of the things about this project is it puts the information out there. People can go, hold on a sec, we have got something here because very recently. Um, uh, ABC Council, uh, Armagh, Bambridge, and Craig Alvin um, released a Defence Heritage Guide, which details some of the places where people can go. That's the they, they had me actually work on it. That one of the key things is you have this show them places you could go. There's tons of places I could talk about, but I can, not everyone can go there. Um, so yeah, we got to highlight places like you New know, Brownlow House, where it's another wee um, museum underneath it, um, and the Augury, which has um, uh, Wallach from uh, Tank Destroyer, a US Tank Destroyer unit, uh, this Panther crunching a tank. Um, but no, it, it's increased the profile, and there are actually more and more places where people can go. 
Um, I know certainly Kelly Moon House over by Cookstown has now opened a wee um, museum in the basement. It had elements of the 82nd Airborne base there. And one of the good things about it and why it's interesting is their walls are covered in graffiti. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing that well, you got to remember. This this is wartime. It's people, and once people were talking about young men, and young men can't seem to keep their hands to themselves because there's just scribbling all over the walls, and there's dirty wall art, and there's names, and there's people t- having jokes or taking a hand out of people. Um, but also there's some quite poignant stuff. Um, uh, one of the features they identified up in Killing Moon was the name of a soldier who'd written his name on the wall. And he was part of the 82nd Airborne, and he, they identified who he was, and it turns out his story, where he, he ends up dropping it into um, uh, Normandy as part of the D-Day lands, and is actually killed uh, on D plus four. Wow. So that's, that's one of the things, even though I find these architecturally and historically quite interesting, it's always more interesting when you actually tie them into that these are actually real human stories. And that's actually why some of the sites that you're looking at, um, there was one of them, uh, it doesn't happen all the time, but there's some sites. One is an anti-tank gunnery range up Port, uh, Port Glenone. And they have these range block houses, basically where you can actually monitor how students are firing early tank guns without getting blown to pieces. Um, but while people have been in there, there's names and places they're from, and sometimes actually serial numbers, carved into the bricks. And so it's just, I find actually when it puts a human face, it's put on, and there's like people from Brooklyn, and there's people from Yorkshire, and people from all over, the guys from all over the world that have come and trained here, and then moved on to wherever. Um, and so I actually find that it becomes more than just concrete and bricks. It becomes concrete and bricks and part of people's stories. Um, one of the places I was at, again, unfortunately, the photographs will be there, but it was one of the places that people tend not to go was um, Bally Kindler. Um, Bally Kindler uh, has been a camp for World War One, World War Two, and still a camp. Um, but one of the features we were looking at was a, a, a grenade range. Busy where troops are brought and taught how to throw grenades. Um, and so there's these wee bays where the instructor would take a trainee, they would go out, pull the pen, throw the grenade, and then obviously duck. But obviously you can't have the whole class standing out there watching because, well, grenades have a habit of exploding and fragments going everywhere, just tend to be a bad thing, helps and safety nightmare. Uh, but I suppose that's what they're designed for. So the entire class would be kept in this underground shelter while the trainees are out doing their thing. And so the shelter's about five meters by five meters or so, concrete and again you just imagine this class of our platoon of maybe 30 guys bored no doubt waiting for their turn to throw a grenade and just carving away their names on the wall and this wall is just covered there's not an inch of this wall that isn't covered with people carving their names and that's been for years this has been happening uh, i'd imagine it was world war ii and i imagine it followed on as perhaps post-war we're just forward soldiers carving their names and i think it's a fantastic thing to be able to, to be able to see to put actual human experience on it instead of just concrete yeah it's incredible that that every single dot on that map is the story not even just of one person but of hundreds potentially thousands of people that have you know passed through those those dots on a, on a map oh yeah um, it's easy to forget it's easy to forget that um these were people's stories like well one of the things and even from the most innocuous looking site is someone's story i remember i was up doing the survey at uh 
Curtison, it was. Um, I was out talking to a landowner, and he did, quite often actually did landowners. I love to actually chat to the landowners um, when I'm out there. And sometimes they'll come out and have a wander around with you and just have a chat. This is actually during COVID as well, actually. So you know yourself, during COVID, you'd be just busting to talk to anyone. I know my wife was sick and tired. She'd heard all my stories, and so I had to come back with them. And um, so the landowner came out, uh, a nice gentleman, and we were walking around one of the dispersed living sites at Kirkuson. And um, it was an old nesting hut. There was a series of three or four nesting huts, and one was a complete nesting hut, the other one was just a base, and then the other was just literally the gable end of it. And uh, he was telling me that he had a rap on the door one time, and it was, um, I think he said it was a Polish gentleman uh, who came and he did this, this quote a few years ago now. And he came to the same spot and he standed in the, in the nesting hut and he pointed to the corner of the nesting hut and he goes, That's where my bed was. I slept there. And this is all covered in brambles now. And he goes, My bed was right there when I was here during the war. And I was like, isn't it great stuff? But yeah, that's it's just all those human stories that are all attached. And you just think of the thousands and thousands of people, knowing and the stories that are just lost the time that are all associated with these sites. And that's why even when they say, Well it's just in this not base, or it's just this, or it's just that and I goes, I know, but it's an imprint of someone's story. Someone slept here, someone was connected with it, someone was away from home and stayed here. And that's why whenever the landowners would say, Well, it's not it's not Stonehenge, it's not Newgrange. Like I said, of course it's not, but it's a mark of someone's past and it's just a small imprint of a small part of history on the landscape. But no, you don't have to. It's not breaking your heart to know for it just to stay there. Mm-hmm. Could you just leave it alone? And oh, like often that's all it took. Sometimes it's just going, but who cares about these? Now? So you have a bit of a chat with them. Like, well, this is why they're interested and this is why. If you don't mind, if it's okay, could you just leave it alone if you're not that bothered? And Often that's all it takes, and they go, "All right, that's grand." And sometimes it's I just didn't think anyone cared about these things. And that uh, you know, that that um, interest in like physical buildings and sites combined with the human story, you know, that that's what we at Wartime NI are. You know, we're constantly writing articles and sharing photos of things and and trying to get the more kind of human side of those stories across and. I know that on a few occasions I've been talking to uh, my mum and uh, quite often I've been I've been doing this now for ten years writing like blog articles and posting photos and things and quite often she'll go, "Are you not nearly finished yet?" Um, so yeah, I'm 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 now going to post that back. I know already know what the answer is, but uh, your work on defence heritage, Jim, uh, is it almost finished and? Uh, if not, which I suspect is going to be the answer, what are your future plans for the project? The project, everything's resources, and the project has a finite amount of resources, and we're near on the near on the end of that. Um, ultimately, all the information will go out there that people will be able to see and access, and that was the point of it. That's that's that, and it's often that's what people need just to go. You know, they have an interest, but they didn't maybe realize that was a resource there or that any of that existed um where i go with that after that that all depends on what people want to do i'm a independent researcher so i go where where, where the work goes to tell you the truth and if i, I can and some of the certainly like i would say like with a abc council where they commissioned a, a heritage guide not necessarily a heritage trail because that suggests you need to walk all these places but um a heritage guide that if we can increase awareness or make people realize what resources are there, then perhaps then people will make an effort or uh, try to actually um, develop their own ways of uh, 
commemorating or memorializing or just actually maintaining these things and ensuring they stay in the landscape. And that's everything from private individuals all the way through councils and the rest. And again, even this helps the because as much as you say members of the public, local politicians are also members of the public that even then they just go, that's one of the weird things I find with Defence Heritage that sometimes with local politicians, if you tell them about say a raft or a stamp stone, they'll start doing like a, yeah, right, that's, that's fine. But they don't really grasp exactly what it is because it's so different in the past and sometimes quite academic explanation. With pillboxes and airfields and bomb aimers and all the rest of that stuff, straight away they know what it is. They've got some sort of connection, either family connection or interest or something like that. And they instantly, they know what you're talking about. Uh, and when you start putting stories on that or showing them that it's actually, sometimes they don't even know that you know, there's a pillbox or just around the corner or there's an air raid shelter or just sometimes patches of concrete and you go, well, actually that's where an air raid shelter was or something like that. And that's sometimes all it takes to foster local interest. And when you have local interest, that's how these things end up staying, no, remaining in the landscape and maybe not casually just covered over or ignored. And that's the legacy of all this project that, that, that ensures the, the long-term survival of these things. When then that's a job well done, as far as I'm concerned. Well, hopefully this episode will um, kind of foster that interest among our listeners and uh, people will be just as enthusiastic about following your work as uh, as I am. Uh, if they are, how can they keep up with your ongoing exploits? Well, like I said, we've got the link to the web mapping site and that'll, that's being updated uh, as we speak and all the sites are going to be able to appear on there. Um, they can also, uh, if they're, they're, they're fond of the odd bit of Twitter, which I am, they can follow on hashtag DefenseHardyGNI, where I'll regale them with all of the other things I found and all of the other pictures I found. Recently, we've been putting up a lot of uh, the aerial photographs from the Public Record Office, um, which has shown me even sites that I didn't know existed at all. So, yeah, if they go on Twitter uh, and they hit hashtag DefenseHardyGNI, um, then they'll, they'll get me um, rambling on. Um, more importantly, if they ask questions, I'm more than happy to um, engage and chat back because that's what we're saying. Um, for one thing, actually, I'd prefer if they ask questions or comment or share because at least then you feel like you're not talking to yourself to tell you the truth. Sometimes you wonder, am I talking to myself? Is anyone listening at all? So when they come back and go, here, this is around the corner or tell me their story, that, that, that helps keep the momentum going and you realise that no, the interest is out there and you're not just boring everyone. Well, you're uh, certainly not talking to yourself or uh, boring us uh, today. I, I could quite happily sit and talk to you uh, all day about this. Um, but I think for now, we'll uh, we'll wrap this episode up. I'd just like to say thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join me and, and have this chat today. And uh, yeah, keep on exploring and, and sharing those stories and sites with us. Spot on, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Subscribe to A Wee Bit of War on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favourite shows. That way, you'll never miss an episode. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your co-workers, break all the rules of the Official Secrets Act, and why not leave a review to help others find the podcast? Thank you for joining myself and Dr James O'Neill, and I look forward to your company again next time for another Wee Bit of War. Mm-hmm.